Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. So I am sitting uh, with Danny Brum, who is the founding director of an organization called Metiv, an Israeli nonprofit founded in 1989, which works with underserved Israeli populations dealing with trauma. And uh, in our conversation today, I'm sure we're going to learn something about a part of Israeli society that many of our listeners probably aren't all that familiar with. There are certain stories people tell about Israel, and there are certain stories people tell specifically about Israeli veterans, which I think cohere to those images of the victorious soldiers after 1967, the victorious uh, pilots after the destruction of Osirak and so forth. Uh, that is an important part of the Israeli story, and if that story didn't exist, you and I would not be sitting in Jerusalem having this conversation. But as we're going to hear from you, uh, there are a lot of other sides of that picture also, and I want to begin by thanking you uh, for taking the time to sit with me and to have our listeners learn about your work and about what your work says about Israeli society. So thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, first, tell us a little bit just about your own story quickly, because obviously people have already heard that you didn't grow up in New York uh, from the way that you said hello. So tell us a little bit about you and then we'll get to your work. So I was born in the Netherlands and uh, I came to Israel in 1988. I had already specialized in trauma in, in the Netherlands and people are asking what kind of trauma is there in, in Holland? Um, but then I came here and basically people said to me, uh, well, we don't really see trauma here. That was really interesting, beginning of the first intifada. So uh, in 1989, I already set up Metiv, the Israel Psychotrauma Center, to really see what is happening here. So a lot has happened since. And I'll speak specifically about veterans, soldiers. And as you know so well, when people talk about soldiers, uh, we do have the image of the strong Israeli soldier and uh, the strong Israeli soldier after his service goes into uh, high tech and makes the world go round and things like that. And there is that side of things which is really interesting and, and especially the connection between military service and high tech uh, and startup society. And there is a connection. So one of the cases that really brought this issue to the attention of the Israeli public, and I think much more than the general Israel-interested English language reading public, because it got a little bit of press in Times of Israel, in J-Post, in Haaretz.com, but not a lot. 
Uh, whereas in Israel, it really became a national headline for a very long time. It was the very sad case that took place on the day before Memorial Day, Yom Hazikaron, the Memorial Day for fallen Israeli soldiers, uh, where a 26-year-old Israeli veteran named Itzik Saidian, uh, who had been given 25% disability by the Ministry of Defense and argued that he deserved 50% disability. And from what I understand, and you'll fill us in if it's appropriate, um, he um, was told by the army that some of his disability had nothing to do with his experience in the war in 2014. It may have been very real disability, but it, they said it was probably childhood disability, and therefore it's not the army's responsibility to compensate him for childhood disability. And uh, tragically, the day before Yom Hazikaron, Memorial Day, he actually went outside the Ministry of Defense and doused himself in flammable liquid, lit himself on fire, uh, and was, of course, immediately rushed to the hospital, uh, where he still is. And from what I understand from you, from our conversation earlier, before we got started recording, uh, he is still actually unconscious, but improved in the sense that he's at least breathing on his own. Uh, but even in the best possible scenario here, this young man has a very long road ahead of him, both as a result of his injuries and, of course, the pre-existing trauma, which is now obviously much more complicated. But his story touched Israel very deeply. Uh, I just put out a piece a couple of days ago uh, on the wedding of Gilad Shalit. And I tried to write there about how what would seem to be just, a, you know, it's nice that he's out. He's been out for 10 years and thank God he's not in captivity anymore. And now he found somebody to spend his life with. It's all good. But it was really a national story in a way because it touched something about the familial nature of Israeli society. And we all kind of cared about him. And the, 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 the uh, headlines in parts of it said, Hayeled shel kulanu, right? He's all of our, he's the boy of all of us, or the son of all of us. And, and Itzik Saidian touched all of us in a very different kind of a way as well. So let's start, not necessarily with talking about him specifically, but what, what that incident of him tells us about Israelis, Israeli soldiers, Israeli veterans, Israeli veterans who are carrying around the tremendous amount of pain and scarring from what they were through. What's it like for them in this society? So here's the problem. Uh, um, in order to be in a combat unit and having to fight and see people die and shoot and be shot at, your brain really needs to be different. You cannot go in there the way we sit here. Uh, your brain needs to change. Uh, we go into what is called survival mode, which changes the brain. It's an amazing thing. Uh, it really helps us go into the army, uh, not look at what we are feeling, not look at uh, real danger. We just go for it. We teach our kids that. Uh, and that works. Now, the army knows how to do this and how to train people. But then, after three years of service, you're stuck with that brain. The brain that's really different. And then the question is, how do you get out of survival mode? Because basically, there's no survival value to get out of survival mode. Uh, you can still see the world as dangerous and to see everything as, as a task that you have to accomplish. And you can see your boss as a commander, uh, which you see in a lot of people. Hmm. So Israeli society basically sees that that is regular, that's normal. 
And then only in very extreme cases, you can go to the Ministry of Defense rear department and then you go through a whole range of interviews where they ask you about your childhood traumas and your relationship with your parents and all kinds of things. And if they see something that is not so okay, they say, oh, maybe it's that. Although young guys are being taken into the army and they get uh, their profile and most often it's 97 uh, in, uh, in Israeli society. So strong young people we need. And then afterwards, if there's trouble, they start to say, well, maybe there's something else. That's very problematic because, of course, childhood trauma is a risk factor for later problems, but it's not the cause. So are you, are you suggesting that this is um, somehow cynical on their part or do they really believe what they're saying? Now, was the Ministry of Defense looking for an excuse not to support these people or do the people who come up with these decisions really think that's what it is? Well, you'll find a range of opinions about that. I don't think, uh, certainly not the social work department of the Ministry of Defense, they want to help people. But the system and the law basically says you have to really check everything and it's a ridiculous process. I have a, a, a veteran in my treatment, it took him five years to be recognized and he was totally dysfunctional. And then people take a lawyer in order to get, uh, to get recognition. Totally ridiculous. That needs to change and I hope it will. Perhaps as a result of this most recent tragedy which yeah. brought this to the attention of the Israeli public and the government. What are the numbers like here? We're a country of some 9 million people. Um, what are the numbers of people walking around who are burdened in a way that affects their life in a significant way by their military experience? So the numbers we have of combat soldiers, because there's lots of military service that is not combat. Of course. Huh? So from combat soldiers, uh, we're talking about between 10 and 15% with really long-term consequences. But at the same time, we then go again into the medical system and say they have PTSD and the rest has so-called nothing. And that is not true. Uh, if you look at post-traumatic symptoms, then about 20%, even 15 years later, 20% have no uh, symptom at all. Uh, about 10 to 15% are in full-fledged post-traumatic stress disorder. And we can talk about that, but people know about it nowadays. But the whole range are on, this, on a continuum, on a spectrum. And they are so-called healthy and nothing happened uh, because they don't have PTSD. So, But their lives are still deeply affected by their experience, you're saying? Some are deeply affected, some are less affected. Uh, but there's this whole range of phenomena that is not looked at at all. And you see that also in other armies. So you're saying that if there's 20%, and obviously a, a, a small portion of soldiers who serve in the army are actually combat soldiers. It's a relatively yeah. small part of the pie. Sure. The, the larger part of it is logistics and support and intelligence and all that kind of stuff. But of these people who do serve, so you're saying there's 20% who get out somehow un, untouched by this state that seemingly yeah. right, they serve they do their work they get out they have a life hopefully a family a career and all of that but what you're saying is that 80 percent of the combat soldiers 
are carrying something that affects them in a some significant yeah. way between PTSD on the one extreme and something significantly less, but yeah. still worthy of attention. So I'll give you an example. Uh, there's this guy, uh, we have this program called Peace of Mind, uh, where we take whole combat units for a period of processing their experiences. While they're still in the army? No, after, after, they're, out after they're out of the army to help them change their brain back. Uh, and it's not brain damage, but it is a different functional brain. So this 28-year guy who came to our program with his unit, uh, everyone says, this guy, he's wonderful. If you need to go somewhere in, into uh, whatever war, you want to go with him, he's wonderful. But they said, since he's out of the army, he is in security, he's a security guard and he's climbing up and he's doing a wonderful job, but he's wasting his life because he's a creative person, he's a chef, he's great. And why does he still go to the security business? And this guy heard this and, and said, you know, but I need my pernosa, I need to make a living. How do I do that if I go out? But a few months after he was in our program, he called us proudly and said, I, I left the security issue. I'm, I'm now in a course for interior design. So that is a transition from uh, survival mode, combat mode to civilian mode. Uh, and that is one of the big questions for Israeli society. Uh, we are a society that is, uh, we're adrenaline junkies. Uh, there is always energy and it's wonderful. But the question is, is it by choice? Uh, or is that something we carry in different degrees after the army service? Are we adrenaline junkies in a different way? Let's say, let's talk pre-corona, pre-COVID. The bustling scene in midtown Manhattan, right? Where you can't even walk on the sidewalk because there's so many thousands of people. That's an adrenaline-driven city also. But you're talking about something different here, right? Or is it similar? Uh, I think it's different. I mean, I haven't done any studies on it, but uh, it feels very different. Uh, I like the adrenaline of New York. It's wonderful. Uh, um, but here, there is behind that adrenaline, there's something like, if I don't do this, it'll be a disaster. I can die. Uh, there is this strong thing. If you drive around in Israel in a car, uh, you, you feel that energy of people saying, I won't let you go first. Uh, and it's, it's aggression. It's not only adrenaline. It's, there's something very strong. Now, there's a totally different side to it. And that is, you know, survival mode brings people together. Uh, and Israeli society is very connected. Uh, that's why you say this, this guy, Itzik Saidian, uh, who, who lit himself and is in very bad situation, it touches everyone because people say it could be my son. Uh, and I have people in my treatment who say that could be me. And he's right. Uh, so it's really a whole thing. Now, yeah, the services for people after the army, uh, that is where we are focusing our, our efforts. Because until now, 
It is, if you have PTSD, come and ask for treatment and we'll give you treatment. And you go to a 22-year-old adrenaline and junkie and say, do you want a psychologist? <laughs> He'll kick you <laughs> off the stairs. Uh, so there's this whole question of how do we relate to the other side of the good side of adrenaline. Um, so what we are working on, we, we've developed this peace of mind program that really takes is a transition program from combat service to civilian mode. And it's amazing how that really changes lives. What, I mean, for the lay people among us, which includes me, uh, what happens in this, how long does the program go? You know, essentially, what's the process yeah. that they go through? So the process is basically, um, first we see them for a sort of a preparation because they need to understand what we're going to do. Uh, and that is changing the language. Because if you come to a combat unit and they do meet, uh, and uh, there's a lot of jokes and cynicism, that's okay. But if you want to go beyond that, they need to be a bit quieter <laughs> and uh, allow each other to open up. So the middle part, the most important part of that peace of mind program is a week in which we do 40 hours of group work. So we are doing that here in Israel. We are doing that a lot in Jewish communities overseas because you're you taking need... soldiers from here to those other communities or you're going yes we we take combat organic combat units between 15 and 20 people uh, and we need a safe bubble where they feel disconnected from their lives uh, and we're doing it now also in israel uh, and it is possible but you take them abroad let's say to the states or to europe we bring them to uh, a community uh, around mostly around the synagogue community who uh, give them the space to be in their homes and and we do 40 hours of group work in a room yeah we fly over the world and then sit for 40 hours in a room but what happens there is amazing because basically they get some information about what is this combat mode uh, and it's automatic you don't have to learn it you really go into it if you go into combat your brain knows how to do that. Uh, but then you hear them saying, well, you know, I see my kids and I'm, I discipline them. That's, I'm their commander. Uh, or, or uh, you know, life is a list of tasks and I go for it and nothing stops me. And then you speak with their wives. Uh, before they come to, on the program, they basically say, you are going to speak? You're a gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny, you know, when you hear that from the guys. And then they come back and something has changed. And they become more intimate with their children. And they can calm themselves down, which is new for Israeli society. Huh? <laughs> so... Uh, in that program, we give the space to everyone to tell their story of their most important um, experience in the war or in a in whatever they do in different places. Now, is the army supportive of this? How do you get to a unit? 
Um, in the beginning, it was through the army, but since we opened this up, uh, we did 120 units, uh, over 2,000 people. We have 140 units waiting. Wow. Okay, so and how many therapists do you have working for Metiv? We have about 25 facilitators for this program. Uh, um, but then we also see when you do this, you see that the major for the majority that is something that really uh, they, they say that you know it takes a stone off my heart. Uh, um, and then there are these 10 15 percent who also come to to the program and you see they need more and if you send them to uh, the combat stress unit in the army is now don't want to go to the army huh? i want to so we are now developing a comprehensive veteran care model huh? that uh, really takes them and takes this 10 percent and the treatments for veterans in the world are not very effective until now so we're working with people in England and the United States on development of newer programs because it has to be a system. You cannot say, you know, uh, the, the last day of the army. Um, I heard that from my kids. Uh, um, you bring your stuff and they say goodbye. And then you get out of the base and people say, oh, what now? Uh, and you're stuck with this adrenaline and a combat uh, brain and you have no idea what to do. Does that explain some of the India, Mongolia, Vietnam phenomenon Absolute. of an overwhelming percentage of soldiers traveling abroad for yeah. a long time? Yes. And, and not only combat soldiers, by the way. I mean, men, women, true. combat, non-combat. I it, don't know what the percentages are, but I don't know, high. but it's, it's very high and, and a lot of risk-taking behavior. That's interesting. Uh, and that is the same thing. You need to get rid of that adrenaline. What do you do? You feel active. You want to do things. You want to challenge. And so there sometimes, and that, that is, of course, not, not a productive thing, uh, they look for danger. So they're jumping off cliffs and they're doing all kinds of things and they need to feel their autonomy. Because until they were in the army and they tell you what to do. So now they have to re, rewire their brain. Uh, there's an American performer who was a veteran who says, you know, they wired me for war and no one unwired me. Uh, which is exactly that. And that's what's going on in Israel also, you think? Yeah. Yeah. With the good parts... And the difficult parts. Right, so the good part is that it makes this a very goal-driven society. People are kind of relentless in the pursuit of success, the ones exactly. who are talented. And that maybe have something to do with the high-tech sector and the biotech sector and all of those kinds of things. Um, but the downside, of course, is those very same people, by the way, I guess, who are highly successful when they go into that tall building in Tel Aviv, when they come home with their wife or husband and their children... Uh, it's not as pretty a picture as what it looks like in exactly. the office there. Exactly. In what other ways does this manifest itself? I mean, you think about this all the time. You know, you've built this organization from the ground up. So this is really the world that you live in and think about. So you mentioned, for example, driving. I and mean, we all know that driving in Israel is a somewhat stressful um, 
Or suicidal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's also true. Now, some of it, by the way, has to do with, because I know from other work that I've talked to other people, for example, paved roads per the number of cars, we don't have the infrastructure. So yeah. the roads are too crowded and there's too many cars. And so that's not a function of anybody's psychological situation. That's just a function of the government didn't invest enough either in rapid transit, public transit, or in roads. And that's a whole other conversation, not for today. Absolutely. But some of the experience of driving, you're right, you know, you leave too much space between you and the car in front of you. You just know somebody's going to cut in front of you. And even I, who I'm not a veteran and uh, don't have any of this rewiring, I don't want people cutting in front of me. So what do I do? I drive probably too close to the car in front of me to be on the defensive side. You're not getting in front of me. So we talked about the driving a little bit. In what other ways? That's more of the more problematic ways. How do we see this manifesting itself in Israeli society in large? Because your kids live here, my kids live here. They're going to be the, the heirs of this social construct that we've allowed to evolve. What are, they, what are they inheriting as a result of this? So I want to, for a moment, stay at the positive side. Okay, great. Uh, and that is, uh, Israeli society is so much a family society. Uh, um, and because that is developmentally, uh, when you're in, in Europe and your child becomes 18 or 20, uh, you say goodbye, goes and study, and you see him once a month. Uh, and that is normal and that's great and everyone is happy. Now here, when your son is 18 and goes into the army, uh, first you go and bring him there and people cry and and you're anxious and the boy is anxious or the girls also you know so something changes in the family system suddenly a 19 year old uh, boy or girl calls and says mommy can you make me lasagna when i come home that's not normal in 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 the united states huh? um, but here the family draws together around military service of one of its members. Uh, and certainly when there is a war and someone is at the front, the family draws together and there is enormous anxiety, but it, it um, expresses itself in bonding. Right, and the society at large is exceedingly supportive of those families. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so that influences the whole development of families in Israel. That's so interesting. Uh, um, now, there are other sides to it, uh, and that is um, the, the violence of combat soldiers or veterans uh, after they're out of the army uh, in relationships is also a known thing. Uh, and um, violence towards their significant others. Yes. Children. Yes. Children. Is that a, that's a statistically prominent. I don't know exactly, Susie, but but we do hear that, and we hear, you know, when they're at the end of our program, they say, "Whoa, now I understand why I I can't um, contain myself when my kids are all over the place and crying and 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 making noise." I can't take it. And now I know what to do. I, I just breathe a bit and that's children. That's okay. That's not war. Huh? Um, so it has a very deep influence in society. 
Now, one other aspect of that attachment issue is that you also decide who is the enemy, uh, which is, you know, in the gut. Uh, so, uh, and we're very easily, even in driving, decide who is our enemy. That's so interesting. Uh, and, and that has to do also, you need, in combat mode, you need to decide that instantly, otherwise you die. Uh, but it generalizes. Uh, so that makes it very difficult to uh, talk with people from the other side, to, um, to think about this, because it's really when you talk about the enemy or what we need to do, uh, you're all full of adrenaline again, and you're all ready to, to go to combat. Uh, um, in human relations, you pay a price for that. It's so interesting. You know, I was actually, you just reminded me of something that I didn't understand until I, I think now. I, I ride my bike to work and um, most of the time I follow the lights and sometimes I don't because uh, I'm on the, you know, I'm on a crosswalk and I'm just waiting. There's no cars anywhere and it's red, but I can, see, it's totally safe. So I'll cross. So, I mean, last week I had crossed one part and I was now on the median waiting to cross the other half. And there was a car that was waiting because it had a left turn and it was waiting. And a guy yells at me out of the window goes why did you cross against the, the the red and part of me thought you know what are you bothering me for it was there's nothing going on what are you i'm on my way home from a long day at work what are you picking a fight for and part of me wanted to really get into it with him but then i thought you know what i said to him the truth is you're right i shouldn't have done it and i appreciate your pointing it out and then he said to me Right? I'm only telling you that because I love you, my friend. This is so beautiful. This and is that's exactly. Israeli. Like he's on one hand, you know, attacking me vociferously because I went against the red light. There's no car there. And it's also the, the Yechida mode, right? We're in this together and I care about you. It's like both sides of the same coin. Exactly that. Huh? It, is, it is the, uh, the stress that, that we have and, and, and you blurt it out. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you then do something else and say, no, yeah, it's only for your good, <laughs> things like that. Uh, um, and I think there's a lot of that in Israeli society. Uh, uh, when I speak with people about driving in Israel, they all laugh. Right. Well, a lot of people die from it. Right. <laughs> uh, um, and it's very different than, for example, uh, I've been working in Turkey after the earthquakes there and driving is very dangerous there but it's not because it's aggressive you don't teach anyone there it's just they surf through the roads they surf to their deaths but we make the deaths you know it's very different so where does it manifest itself in society for example other than driving uh, what what are, what are the parts of this society where you think this being wired to locate the enemy and being wired to survive where are you and I feeling this in the day-to-day -day of our lives in Israel? Well, in your field, you must see it all the time. Huh? Uh, go to the Knesset. Huh? It's not just you know someone with a different opinion. It's an enemy and he's trying to kill me and I'm trying to kill him or something like that. Now, how does that work though? I don't know what percentage of the 120 people in the Knesset who, for example, acted very badly the day that Naftali Bennett was elected or have acted fairly badly even since then. We see all kinds of things in the Knesset that make our stomachs turn. Now, 
a percentage of them, I mean, Naftali Bennett was in Sarat Matkal, and he actually behaved himself pretty well. But there were other people there who were not in combat units, who were, at, so it's not the actual people, right? It's the well, societal yeah, norms, we are, right? Yeah, we are a survival society. Uh, this is just after another little war, uh, which we now say, oh, that was nothing. Uh, but no, it was. Uh, it was something. And if you live in the South, it really was something. Uh, and if we, we've done a lot of research in the South of Israel, where people since 2001 are under missile attacks. Uh, and now we have 20, 20 year olds who were born there in that situation. That does something to the brain. Uh, exactly the similar ways. But I think it has gotten into our culture. Uh, the culture basically says, uh, and of course we have the transgenerational thing, we all came from different countries, and how afraid were we there, and did we come here because of anti-Semitism or Holocaust? Uh, there's a lot of, of that baggage. Uh, That's very interesting. So in a certain way, tell me if this is wrong, but let's just say, so you have a tremendous number of people who came because of anti-Semitism or more Europe than North America, but still, right, they, they came because of the Holocaust or the waves after the Holocaust, the sense that that was not a place for the Jews to live, and they came here seeking shelter. And then ironically, they have children, and they send their children off to the army, and we tell a story about finally the Jewish people can defend themselves, etc., etc. But the reality is, in a certain way, we're actually just replicating a different kind of trauma. They left Europe because of one kind of trauma. They come here for safety, but to have that safety, their children endure yet another kind of trauma. So where the, the immigrant generation and the born here generations, there's a lot of trauma floating around the society. Is that what I yeah. hear you saying? There is a lot of trauma and still we're not the highest in the world on PTSD. Of course, there is a lot of PTSD, I think about 10% of the whole population has very high levels of post-traumatic symptoms. But um, that is not it. It is in the culture. It is how we talk with each other. It's how people talk in the Knesset. Uh, um, there is something in our culture that has that whole baggage and it's being expressed. Uh, so um, another program that we're doing for Ethiopian immigrants uh, um, who have come here going through Sudan, uh, experiencing horrible things there. And these are, have not become, you know, um, our pride. They are in enormous trouble and psychosocial services, we've worked very hard to develop them, but to get them into the system doesn't happen. Uh, and so there's also the people we reject more or less. Uh, and that's very painful. And causes its own trauma. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you're working with veterans. You're working with Ethiopians. What are some of the other groups that Metiv is working with? So we've done a lot of work with children. Uh, because children and that we started in 2001 in the South. Uh, developing the question of what happens to two and three-year-old children. And then we found out and have published about that, that, uh, you know, if you have a post-traumatic parent, 
you'll find a post-traumatic child of two and three years old. Mm. Uh, and uh, so if you want to do something with children, why not start real early? So we developed a program uh, to, uh, we did groups of mothers and children to help the mothers regulate themselves. And maybe that brings us to an, a different point. Trauma basically individually attacks our regulatory system in the brain. Uh, um, so we have difficulties to calm ourselves down, to uh, look at things and not be reactive. Uh, that is what trauma does to children, to adults. So we have focused our efforts on how to increase regulation in children and parents. Uh, and um, what we tend to do is develop these programs, test them, and then teach them. Uh, so that, that is our, our model, the Metiv model, basically. Uh, now, with uh, the Peace of Mind program, in a, in a way, that, that is happening also, because now the Ministry of Defense um, put out a tender to do groups in Israel, but of that model, through you or on its own? On its own, we got half of the tender, so we're doing part of so that. So they're going to use your model so and your training. So there is, there is something happening. Uh, so now we're moving on to developing the other part of a comprehensive veteran care. Uh, so that is where we need to be. We're an NGO, so we want to develop and get it into the system. That's very interesting. You know, a few weeks ago, I interviewed uh, Mikhail Menkin, who's one of the founders of Breaking the Silence. And Breaking the Silence is obviously a very controversial organization, both in Israel and outside of Israel. And he said whatever he said. But one of the things that he said that I thought was very interesting is he said, in a certain way, the success of the organization is to be located in the fact that the army is now actually policing itself and its soldiers much more aggressively mm -hmm. than it was before. He said in a certain way, they've also, he's not, he hasn't been with the organization in, in more than a decade. But he said basically that the organization's success is in part that it sort of made itself not necessary in certain mm. ways because it taught the army what it needed to do. And it sounds like in a very different kind of a way, in a whole different field, Metiv, which I guess we should just say is a Hebrew word that means to, to help others or to, to, be, to give benefit to others and so forth, appears in Birkat HaMazon and other places. So Metiv has done, had a similar impact on the army also. In other words, there's all these non-profits which seemingly are outside the army system which have to exist because the army isn't doing or can't do what it should be doing and then you look back and you say but actually now the army is actually internalizing some of what it's learned from us and with us which is actually i think a very positive thing very positive yeah uh, the ideal my ideal would be to make ourselves you know redundant <laughs> uh, that that is but there is a lot of trauma still uh, and to get that to the best possible uh, method you really need to think systemic uh, and that is not only you know we have a new method and and it's great and I have someone coming later today to sell me a new method uh, uh, and it's wonderful and I like that but where do things fit and how do you make sure you don't leave soldiers wounded in the field as we say huh? so and and at this moment still like Itzik Saidian there's a lot of suffering 
and the Ministry of Defense, the Rehab Department, is still not up to par where they should be. Uh, and that is where we really need to work systemically, developing research and also working on the political level of, of making sure that these things change. It's really extraordinary. Sort of by beginning to wrap up, you know, I think a lot of us who, um, you came about 10 years before we did. We came in 98, you came in 88, 89. 88, 88. Yeah. So exactly 10 years before we did. You know, we came to a country that looked more or less built, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the national water carrier had already been built. And whatever building you went into, you flipped the switch, there was electricity. There was sewage, there were roads, there were airports, there were schools, there were hospitals. When we landed here, it looked like it was a pretty built country. And... Many of us, I think, ask ourselves, so if the country's already built, so how am I the pioneer, right? I mean, how, what, am I gonna, what am I gonna give? And I think many of us have looked for that way in which we can leave our fingerprint or make our contribution to Israeli society. And I have to say that listening to what you have done, not building, thinking about creating Metiv and nurturing it all these years and all the lives that you've changed, uh, it's, it's both really what we would call in Hebrew Avodat Kodesh. I mean, it's really sacred work. Uh, it's also pioneering. It's chalutziyut, and it's in, in a real way. It's like looking at this, at this not only swamp, but this area, and saying, "Okay, I'm here. What does it need me to do? Here's what I know how to do, and here's my my contribution." And um, for a, as a fellow immigrant, you came from the Netherlands. I came from the States, but you know we're all in this together. To see what you've done, and to to see how you've brought the training that you had from Europe, and the instincts and the soul that that is you. Uh, and how you've really enriched Israeli society is, is very is very powerful and it's very moving. So I'm going to speak not only on behalf of myself, but on behalf mm. of all of us here. Um, it's really an opportunity to thank you for, for really a lifetime of service to the Jewish people and a lifetime of service to our young people especially. Well, you know, if I think about that, um, it is transgenerational. Because my parents, living in Switzerland and England during the Holocaust, after the Holocaust, gave up their uh, professional lives to go and work with children wow. who came out of the camps, out of hiding in Belgium and later in Holland. Wow. Uh, so I went into the business of my father. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, these are the things that, that, that move you to do that into. And, and, and then in Israel, I found a way to have some meaning for my adrenaline. <laughs> and it's nice to, to set things up. It's more than nice. It's really, uh, it's, it's important. It's profound. It's transformative for the country. Uh, so we've been speaking with Danny Braum, who is the uh, founding director of Metiv, M-E-T-I-V, right? M-E-T-I-V dot O-R-G. Uh, has a Hebrew website, has an English website. People can take a look at what you do, learn more about the organization. Uh, but for taking time out of what is obviously a very busy schedule to tell more people about your work and about the contributions that Metiv has made to Israeli society. Just want to thank you on behalf of all of us who live here and all of our listeners and wish you and the organization continued success. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to, to just think about these things and, and look back and look forward. Uh, so thank you for this opportunity. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.